Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Thaddeus Williams. We're going to be talking about his new book, Don't Follow Your Heart, Boldly Breaking the Ten Commandments of Self-Worship. It's fascinating. We're going to uh, look at what these Ten Commandments of the culture are and discuss that. So uh, Thaddeus Williams is a professor at Talbot School of Theology, my alma mater, and he's written many, many books, and I'm excited to have him on the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome, Thaddeus. It is good to be here, Beckett. How are you? Good. Good to have you. Um, Okay, so don't follow your heart. I love that. Let's talk about, um, you talk about the new Decalogue, the new Ten Commandments, basically. Let's just, can you just go through what those Ten Commandments are uh, in the culture and what, and what the the hashtag and, and kind of just that brief explanation of what they are? Sure. So the premise of the book is that what we're facing as a culture is not just a new trend, um, but a new religion, a fully orbed worldview with adherents and prophets and saints and their own sacred songs, their own hymns, their own commandments, their own dogmas. Mm -hmm. And it is what I call the cult of self-worship. So you have 84% of Americans that say the chief end of man is to enjoy yourself. The the point of life, the reason you're on planet Earth is to enjoy yourself. 86% say to enjoy yourself, do what you desire most. So it's like, you know, the old Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? To glorify and enjoy God forever. Well, we flip that inside out. So now the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy ourselves forever. And then you have a whopping, I think it's, Let's see, it's right here in front of me. It's 94%. 94% of Americans think that the answers are within. And so with this cult of self-worship, it comes with these commands that I, I hashtag. So commandment number one, thou shalt always act in accord with your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag live your best life. I love that. And number two. Thou shalt never be outdated, but always edge on the edge of the new. Hashtag OK Boomer. And just by the way, if people don't know what OK Boomer means, can you explain what that is? Yeah, yeah. So it's basically a way of saying, like, you're so outdated, you're outmoded, you're irrelevant. OK Boomer. (laughs) Uh, It's an ageist way of saying, like, you're not cool, you're not trendy, you're not cutting it. Okay. So the third commandment. Yeah, thou shalt obey your emotions at all cost. Hashtag follow your heart. Number four, thou shalt be courageous enough to defy other people's expectations. 
Hashtag be true to yourself. Thou shalt live your truth and let others live theirs. Hashtag you do you. Number six is thou shalt pursue the rush of boundary free experience. Hashtag YOLO. Do people still say YOLO? I feel like I don't know, but it means you only live once. But I don't think they I don't think uh, maybe boomers do. But uh, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think think the kids do. YOLO, you're going to get okay boomered probably. Uh, commandment number seven, thou shalt trust yourself, never letting anyone oppress you with the antiquated or outdated notion of being a sinner. Hashtag the answers are within. Mm-hmm. Uh, commandment eight, thou shalt invent and advertise thine own identity. Hashtag authentic. Number nine, thou shalt force the universe to bend to your desires. Hashtag live the dream. And last but not least, this one's everywhere in our culture. Thou shalt celebrate all lifestyles and love lives as equally valid. Hashtag love is love. So that's the new Decalogue, the new Ten Commandments of the cult of self-worship. Yeah, it sounds pretty accurate. And in in your your introduction, you say, "I, I wrote this book to convince you to become an atheist about yourself a defiant, outspoken, strident atheist cured of the delusion of your own deity. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of that came from, you know, just a bit about the inspiration behind how can I convince people to be atheists about their own pretended deity? Uh, My kids and I, my, my wife and I with the kids play the game Spot the Lie, which is super straightforward if they're watching whatever YouTube clip or whatever Disney show whatever it might be, if they can spot a falsehood and explain why it's false, they win $1. I love that. And so they're getting, it's just a way to teach them to be discerning and not just passively, you know, be a chameleon and take on the colors of whatever's around you. And they're getting so good at it. You know, I rarely have any cash left in my wallet. And (laughs) this was going back uh about three or four years ago so we have a daughter named holland who we call dutch for short uh she's actually on the cover of the book she's all uh, oh that's her oh nice all her friends at school that is holland um and she comes jumping down the stairs so she she was probably nine years old she comes jumping down the stairs daddy you owe me another dollar what'd you find this time and she had been watching a commercial for I don't know, whatever pixie, princess, rainbow, unicorn, sparkle, whatever. And she says, Daddy, the commercial told me I should follow my heart. And I said, okay, well, where's the lie? Spot the lie. And this was her exact response, permanently filed away in the proud daddy moment, cabinet in my brain. She said, Daddy, I don't want to follow my own heart. My heart is fallen. I'd way rather follow God's heart. And I was just like, oh, 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 oh my gosh. Wow. Well, so I wrapped my arms around her, gave her a big hug, and she got five bucks for that <laughs> one. Well-earned five dollars. <laughs> so, yeah, convincing uh, for, for my then nine-year-old who just turned 13 um, at an early age to realize that she isn't the ultimate meaning maker, that there's authority higher than her own heart is in a way, helping her to be an atheist about herself and a theist about the true God. I love that. That's good. That's some good training. Um, (laughs) That's very good. So, okay. In chapter one, 
live your best life, hashtag live your best life. You say that social science has gradually caught up with something the theologians have been talking about for millennia, quote, the paradox of hedonism. The more we seek happiness, the more miserable we tend to become. Talk about that for a sec. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hard evidence backing that up. So really in the 1960s is when America took a a hard turn towards what nowadays we're calling expressive individualism. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chief end of man is to make my three best friends, me, myself, and I happy. Uh, The 1960s is when the pursuit of happiness came to be re-envisioned as in in a very consumeristic, me-centered kind of a way. Um, And so since the 1960s, I'm just borrowing from a psychologist named David Myers. He wrote a brilliant little book called The American Paradox. He says from 1960 to the turn of the 21st century, so over that 40-year period, America doubled its divorce rate, tripled the teen suicide rate, quadrupled the violent crime rate, quintupled the prison population, sextupled out-of-wedlock births, and septupled the rate of cohabitation without marriage, which, which is a significant predictor in eventual divorce. So, so here's the irony of all those stats, is the more fixated we become on our own happiness, it seems to be the case the more miserable we become. Mm-hmm. And and that's something philosophers and theologians have been talking about for centuries. The paradox of hedonism, the most miserable people you've ever met, the most miserable version of yourself or myself is the are the people or the versions of ourself that are the most fixated on our own happiness. And I know that's true of me. I, I look back and on seasons of life when I'm at my worst and least satisfied are those seasons when I'm most preoccupied with, am I happy? Am I satisfied enough? Am I gratified? Um, and I think as a theologian, there's a deep reason behind the paradox of hedonism, which is we were never designed to be the center of our own existence. Mm-hmm. So you make yourself the center point, you will end up anxious, depressed, miserable, and overwhelmed. There's something really liberating and freeing to make God the center point of your existence. When you take him seriously, when we take him seriously, it frees us up to not have to take ourselves so seriously. And that's a huge part of of living a truly satisfied life. We'll be right back after this short break. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the case in my life before Christ. I... I just felt this heavy burden of, you know, that, that I live that life. I live that kind of hedonistic life. And it was, it was burdensome and kind of like this never ending cycle. And <clears throat> once you, once I came to faith in Christ, everything changed. And, yeah. you know, and like, and I, I experienced true joy. That's uh, right. Was, you had that moment, was, wasn't it? Because uh, you contributed to my last book, right? Yeah. Confronting injustice, yes, not compromising truth, and such a powerful story. Weren't you at a uh, Stella McCartney's after party or something? Yeah, in, in Paris. Paris. Yeah. yeah, and you're looking around. You've arrived by the world standards, right? And you just had this 
I don't want to put emptiness. sense of existential angst and emptiness. Yeah. And then I think the way you end your story in the book is like you have real meaningful, substantial joy because it's not a joy anchored in Beckett. It's a joy anchored in Jesus. And Amen. Yeah. so you lived, I've lived the paradox of self-defense of yeah. paradox of uh, hedonism for sure. Okay. So, okay. Boomer. Um, just want to read a quote from from chapter. I think this is chapter two. Uh, you say true heretics reject humanity's oldest lie. They yeah. refuse to be traditionalists. Now, this sounds confusing, but can you just explain a little bit? And you talk about Jim Morrison, Michelle Foucault, and RuPaul, but can you just explain what that means? Yeah, sure. So think of uh, I think it was the the Grammys just a couple months ago. When I think Sam Smith and Kim Petras sang, oh, help me out. What is his? his I don't, big... I know, I can't remember at the body shop. Unholy. Oh, okay. Unholy. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was this big spectacle. There was, you know, um, demon worship and stuff demon, was yeah, all was part of very dark, the shock factor. Um, and I ended up writing a, a piece about that performance, how this is marketed to us as, oh, look how edgy. Look, look how how cutting edge. Look how this is upsetting the status quo. Look how, you know, this is getting all the traditionalists and all the fundamentalists uh, in a in a tizzy about it. Well, what I unpack in that chapter in chapter two is that. Kim Petras and Sam Smith are being uber traditionalists. They're, they are literally parroting the oldest lie in human history. When you go back to Genesis 3, verse 5, what is, what is the serpent's original offer to Adam and Eve? The serpent says, you will be like God. And then it uses this phrase, knowing good and evil. Now, knowing, let me just nerd out, uh, and, and do a little bit of exegesis for a second. There's not a good English word for what's going on in the Hebrew here, knowing. The closest we could get would be something like, I know something because I made it that way, mm-hmm. like, like maker's knowledge. So um, back when I was in grad school, I lived with some of my old high school buddies. And one of them um, still to this day plays bass for, a band called Lincoln Park. And around about that time, he was working on their um, after hybrid theory, their Meteora, their sophomore release. And he'd come home from the studio around about the same time I'd get home from work. And so he would play me what was over 50 tracks that eventually got whittled down to, I think, the 11 that made the album. And I would ask Dave questions about the songs, you know, like what effect are you using on the bass there to make it sound so huge? What's the song about? Things like that. And I never once stumped Dave because he knew the songs. He knew the songs because he made the songs, not mm-hmm. because he studied them or listened to them on repeat. He, he had a maker's knowledge. That's the kind of knowledge God has of his creation of the universe. He knows it because he is the sovereign maker. He he is the ultimate definer of reality. 
And so Satan's offer then is you can be like God. You can be the knowing maker. You can be the sovereign Lord over. You can be the the definer of. And then it says knowing good and evil. And good and evil, for years I read that as just moral categories, but, but there's something deeper going on. If we were ancient Jews, we would use polar opposites to describe everything in between. So if we're ancient Jews, if we hop in a time machine, we're hanging out in the ancient Near East, and I want to describe every color, I would say maybe black and white. Um, if I want to describe every rock band in history, I would say the Beatles and Nickelback, right? <laughs> That's you know, <laughs> describing every band. No offense to the Nickelback fans out there. Um, so, so good and evil is ancient Hebrew shorthand for everything. So the serpent's original temptation, you can be godlike, being the knowing maker, defining the meaning of everything. And so in our generation, um, this message of define yourself, follow your heart, be true to yourself, craft your own identity, you get to define the meaning of marriage, you get to define the meaning of, of morality, you get to define your own identity— um, there's nothing new about that. Is it is incredibly, incredibly outdated. Goes all the way back to Genesis three. Yes, nothing new under the sun. Um, uh, that's that's good. And so, in uh, the chapter "Follow Your Heart," chapter three, I just want to read a quote. Where is it? Uh, can't find. Okay, here it is. Uh, you said you you talk about that. You say our first reason to not follow our hearts, answering Steve Jobs, is that our hearts are too dull. What do you mean by that? That our hearts are too dull. Sure. Um, so David Foster Wallace was, you know, the great postmodern novelist. He wrote Infinite Jest. Just yes. a, a brilliant, brilliant mind. Um, and in his famous commencement speech, I think it was from back in like 2005, um, called This is Water, that if your listeners haven't read or, or watched it on YouTube, watch David Foster Wallace, This is Water. It's so good. And, and he makes the point in there that um, if we become our own sort of functional deities, our own sovereign meaning makers, then we become what he calls kings and queens of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms. And that's so insightful because you really, if I'm the, the maker of my own meaning, then I, I'm trapped in my own skull. Uh, there's no meaning bigger than me. And I think, Beckett, the, the fact is every human being, regardless of whether you're a Scientologist or a Mormon or an atheist or a Christian, whatever you might be, we all have a longing for something beyond our own skulls, mm -hmm. <laughs> for something bigger than ourselves. And so I argue and follow your heart in that chapter debunking that, that God is awesome in all the ways that we aren't. And so, so I list, I think in, at the end of chapter one, 14 ways God is more awe-inspiring than we are. You know, he's everywhere present. We're localized. He has an infinite IQ. He knows everything past, present, and future. Um, 
for us, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, our love can be inconsistent. God's love never fails. We can be grudge harboring and vindictive and unforgiving. God's grace is infinite and, and relentless. Um, our sense of justice can be skewed and we think we're helping when we're actually hurting. God is perfectly just. Um, we might labor under the delusion that we're large and in charge, but God actually is sovereign over the entire cosmos. And so I argue that that good theology is sort of like a trip to the Grand Canyon where nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to feel big about themselves, right? Nobody stands on the edge and says, behold me and my awesomeness. We go to the Grand Canyon to feel small because we need awe. We need to be awestruck. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the follow your heart dogma um, strips us of awe is it makes us so fixated on our finite selves that we miss out on being awestruck at the infinite God. Yeah, I like that. Um, that's a, and that's a really great chapter. And so I want to move to be true to yourself. The chapter yeah. be true to yourself. Uh, you say that we never seek to be true to ourselves in a vacuum. And I, I talk about this all the time because, you know, when I was in high school, everyone in my school, all the boys in my boys school, the girls in the girls school, they all believe that homosexual behavior or homosexuality was wrong. They just, by default, everyone agreed on that. Society agreed on that. And right, you were raised in a, in Texas, right? In, in Dallas, place. yeah, yeah. And so, um, but some, you know, today, some of those same people are post, you know, rainbow flags on their social media or whatever during Pride Month. They're you know allies kind of thing. And it's like, well, what's happened? What's happened in the last thirty years or whatever thirty plus years? It's like. We and it's like you're right. We don't live in a vacuum. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So let's let's take a hypothetical teenager who um, is female, and you know when you and I were growing up, we had a category for girls who <laughs> manifested more masculine. Uh, preferences and and maybe some habits and we would call them what tomboys tomboys yeah that was just you are a girl no question about that with more masculine traits here's this term tomboy it wasn't offensive um it wasn't a dig yeah Uh, but in our day you know in the last 30 years or so certain ideologues and philosophers that most teenagers, I would say 99% of teenagers have never heard of. So this would be, you know, Frederick Nietzsche arguing that um, we just exist. There's no God. God is dead for Nietzsche. So we get to um, take over God's role by defining our own meaning out of thin air for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We could talk about Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist who said, you just exist. You get to create your own essence. Uh, and that would include um, what is the essence of boyhood and girlhood? What What is the essence of, of your gender? Um, it would include philosophers like um, John Money or, or uh, researchers like John Money, uh, who is one of the pioneers of uh, 
transgenderism and transgender uh, transition and surgery. Harry Benjamin falls in that category. Well, we'll talk about these folks in a little more depth down the road. Um, we could talk about Alfred Kinsey. We could talk about Jacques Derrida. We could talk about Michel Foucault. There's a long list of philosophers who across the board were hardcore atheists and had a deep animosity for all things Christian. Mm-hmm. They created new categories where um, the sovereign self can self-identify and that self-identification is unquestionable and sacred. Uh, and if you question that, you are a heretic, you're, you're a blasphemer. And so now take a, our hypothetical teenage girl, we'll call her Jane. Let's say Jane um, really enjoys monster trucks. <laughs> you know, let's say she, she really loves football. Let's say, you know, things that are sort of stereotypically masculine. 30 years ago, Jane would be a tomboy. But because the culture has shifted, our, our plausibility structures are different. The, the air that we're breathing around us has changed. She would be encouraged to explore the fact that she was, in fact, born in the wrong body. Yeah. Uh, therefore, to be your authentic self, you must transition. Um, you, you need to start your hormone therapy. You need to get on testosterone. Uh, maybe you need to start binding your breasts. Uh, maybe you, you should start exploring, you know, getting uh, reassignment surgery or something like that. And all the while, Jane will be convinced she's on this journey of, of self-discovery and self being true to herself. In reality, she is being duped into being a devotee to a bunch of ideologues and philosophers and gender theorists that she's probably never heard of. Uh, and so being true to yourself, I argue in that chapter, is almost always a case of being true to others' selves. And I argue that the people behind those kinds of ideologies, we have no evidence that they even gave a rip about our good and our flourishing. And so why would we be beholden to a bunch of dead ideologues who, when they follow their own hearts, and I document this in the book, it did not go well for them. These right. are miserable men, usually miserable white men pushing these ideologies who were either deeply suicidal um, or um, deep, deeply addicted to things like heroin or fill in the blank. So we're f- literally following the ideologues of people who, when they practiced what they preached, it made them utterly miserable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's not follow that yeah. <laughs> anymore. Maybe follow Jesus instead. Yeah, follow Jesus. Uh, and then in uh, the chapter hashtag you do you, you, you talk about relativism. And you say, if you buy into the hashtag you do you relativism of our age, then frankly, you are being conned out of three essential components of your truest self. And one of those is courage. And you say that uh, relativism makes cowards of us all. Yeah. How, how does that, how does that happen? I mean, just look at some of the heroes of history, you know, Frederick Douglass uh, at the height of the American, you know, transatlantic slave trade. He, he didn't look around and say, well, 
slave trading might not be for me, but who am I to judge? You know, maybe those those slave masters are just being true to themselves. I don't want to step on any toes. I don't want to be an absolutist or a bigot. So, no, he he said there is a moral standard that transcend that's bigger than America, that that's bigger than the slave trade. It's even bigger for Frederick Douglass than his own heart. That there, there's an objective justice. There's an objectively true good and beautiful. And so by believing, and he spells this out uh, in his autobiography, he was continually looking up to Jesus and what he calls the Christianity of Christ. And that give, gave him the courage to stand up against what he calls this Christless Christianity, this, this pseudo-Christianity um, that was often being used to justify things like, like slavery or, as he calls it, man-stealing. And, and Frederick Douglass is just one of many cases in point. I talk about um, the German college student Sophie Scholl, um, mm-hmm. Love Jesus, and precisely because of her love for Jesus and her desire to follow God's heart, she looked at the Nazis, she looked at the Third Reich, and said, we need to fight this evil. And so she started the, this uh, sort of underground, secret, subversive society, the White Rose Society, um, with her big brother Hans, to expose the evils of Nazism. And, and so you look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, you look at the people who fought apartheid in South mm-hmm. Africa. You look at the people who fought the caste system in India. You look at the people today fighting human trafficking. Um, and without exception, they they were not relativists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> without exception, they believed in an objectively true, good, beautiful, and just. And so following our heart, that that cult of self-worship robs us of that kind of courage. Yeah. I like that. Um, okay. And then just a couple more things. Um, in hashtag YOLO, you only live once, <laughs> you say that the self-worshippers doctrine of hashtag YOLO steals, quote, up and, quote, happily ever after from our, our vocabulary. Explain. Yeah. So if there's, um, maybe I could put it this way. Um just two nights ago, um, I watched Pinocchio with my little boy. Little Henry is seven years old. And Pinocchio was probably my favorite uh, Disney movie back in the day. And as we're watching it, I must have been the most obnoxious dad in the world because I kept pausing it and explaining, <laughs> like, here's what's going on and here's the worldview and, and all this. But But I asked little Henry. I said, uh, what is this little wooden puppet? What is his quest? What is he seeking? What is he journeying toward? What's the point of the adventure? And and Henry said, well, it's to, to become a real boy. I said, that that's exactly right. Um, is Pinocchio supposed to do whatever he wants to become a real boy? Or is he supposed to listen to something outside of himself? And little Henry, seven years old, thinks about it. He's like, oh, yeah, he's got Jiminy. Jiminy. Yeah, what's Jiminy? His conscience. His conscience who helps him discern between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So, Henry, what happens to Pinocchio when he doesn't listen to 
his conscience? Has he become more or less of a real boy? And Henry thinks about it for a minute, and he's like, and we're watching the scene where Pinocchio's nose is turning into a tree branch, right? He's like, oh, he's becoming less of a boy and more of a tree. I'm like, exactly. And then when he goes off to Pleasure Island, and he's just doing whatever he wants and ignores Jiminy again, um, he becomes even less of a real boy. He makes a literal jackass out of himself. Um, and so towards the end, I said, Henry, you know, watch what's happening as as Pinocchio is taking on Monstro. Well, what is he being to, to fight this big sea monster? And Henry's like, he's being brave. I'm like, yeah, that's right. And, and look, he's he's willing to die to save Geppetto. Um so he's being loving. He's being sacrificial. What do you think's going to happen? And he's seen it 50 times. So he's like, he's going to become a real boy, isn't he? I'm like, <laughs> nailed it. You know, it, so that's what I'm arguing uh, in the, the YOLO chapter is if there are real moral absolutes that come from a transcendent God, life can actually become an adventure uh, where we, we learn to cultivate virtue through suffering and, and we're progressing towards something. But uh, if I'm my own standard of right and wrong, there's life is impossibly boring and dull because there's nothing above myself to adventure towards, right? Wherever I am, I'm the highest standard of virtue. Because I am the standard of virtue in the, the cult of self-worship. So um, in that section, I sort of rewrite a scene from Lord of the Rings. I just started uh, reading that with, with the little ones uh, this week. And uh, I just want to read this real quick. The difference between what Tolkien actually wrote, there's that famous scene from The Two Towers, you know, Frodo's exhausted. Why are we doing this, Sam? He asks. What are we holding on to? And Sam replies that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Right? That, that's a very absolutist thing to say. It, it only makes sense that there's a transcendent good. But here's the self-worshippers cut of the same scene. Frodo, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam. That there's no transcendent goodness in this world, Mr. Frodo, only your subjective projections of goodness into a cosmic void in which our mission to Mordor is no better in any deep sense than Sauron's mission to get his ring back or the Urukai's mission to get man flesh back on the menu. Um, so in the rewrite, you can see there's, there's no adventure left in the world if we're our own um, functional deities. Yeah. Um and you you talk about i mean just briefly tell us uh, this is kind of the last thing we'll we'll say is you structure the book at at the end of each chapter you have a heretic's testimonial a heretic's prayer and a heretic's field manual what are what is what are those yeah 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 so uh, i did this with my last book where you were one of the the contributors and it ended up being my favorite part of the book so in uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, um, the end of every chapter, you share a story. There, there's folks who came out of uh, neo-Nazism who share their story, how Jesus saved them from racism. 
There's people who came out of hard leftist ideologies and how Jesus delivered them from that. And and that far and away was my favorite part of that book was real life, flesh and blood people who Jesus has saved. Uh, and so I kept that going with this book. We have um, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's mm-hmm. amazingly inspirational uh, with her quadriplegia and how God has used her her wheelchair over the decades. Um, we share the story of uh, Josh McDowell coming from a history of severe sexual abuse and emotional abuse and how Jesus redeemed that. Um, share the story of uh, J.P. Moreland and his battles with intense, debilitating anxiety mm-hmm. um, and how Jesus pulled him through that. Uh, there's a story of Elisa Childers, a former Christian rock star turned apologist, uh, and how her living the dream and pursuing rock stardom, uh, how how much better it is following Jesus. Um, and then th- there's a really powerful story that's probably going to ruffle some feathers, but uh, Walt Heyer, who's a, a detransitioner, uh, and he talks about how uh, he was encouraged early on to be uncomfortable in his own body, uh, which led to reassignment surgery mm. and how ultimately uh, he found redemption through through that whole process. So every chapter ends with somebody's story that that pulls the all the philosophizing and theologizing down to earth and shows what it looks like in, in real lives. Uh, and then you have a, a prayer because recognizing that, you know, we need supernatural help to, to actually follow God's heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's, there's a, a heretics field manual where um, if we want to be heretics against the cult of self-worship, what are some down to earth daily habits we can be forming? Because otherwise we're going to be swept up in the liturgies of self-worship. You know, even online shopping can become a liturgy where it's like, ooh, what do I want and how do I find gratification? And and mindless scrolling can be a, a liturgy of orienting the world around self. Um, so every chapter ends with sort of a field manual. Here's some things, pretty straightforward things you could do today to get you out of your little skull-sized kingdom um, to help us better follow God's heart. I love it. Okay. So guys, the book is Don't Follow Your Heart. And Thaddeus, when is when is this release? It's available today. You can buy it. You can buy it now. Yeah, yeah. I, I would encourage folks to pre-order it because uh, you'll get your, your hands on it sooner rather than later. Um, the the best way to, to get to it, go check out um, www.jointheheretics.com. Jointheheretics.com. There's a ton of bonus content on there. Uh, I actually recorded an EP of uh, original music that goes along with the book that uh, readers can access. There's a bunch of supplementary articles and content. Um, there's a manifesto that uh, that readers can sign, add their names to. I think it's got about 700 folks on there now. Uh, so that's www.jointheheretics.com. Uh, the official release date is October 3rd, uh, but you can order it now. And uh, yeah, I hope you do. I hope you do too. Well, thank you for for sharing that. And thank you for writing this book. I think it's very important. And I urge you guys to get a copy and pre-order it. 
So um, thank you, Thaddeus. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Beckett. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of the Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.